All right, well, this morning's Bible reading comes from John 7. If you've got a Bible, open up to John 7 as we continue looking through the gospel according to John in order to help us see who is Jesus Christ. What does he do? Why does he matter? Uh, and so this morning, we're going to be looking at John 7, uh, verses 1 through 36. And so, uh, with your Bibles open, follow along with me as I read. After this, after Jesus had miraculously fed the 5,000, Jesus went around in Galilee. For he did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even, John writes, his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify its works are evil. You go to the festival. I am not going up to the festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he said this, Jesus stayed in Galilee. However, though, after his brothers had left for the festival, he also went up, not publicly, but in secret. Now, at the festival, the Jewish leaders there were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said he's a good man. Others said, no, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything about him for fear of the leaders. Not until halfway through the festival... Did Jesus go up into the temple courts and begin to teach? And the Jews there were amazed and asked, how, how did this man get such learning, having never been taught? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There's nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps it. Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who's trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle. And you're all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though it actually didn't come from Moses, but the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man that they're trying to kill? And here he is, speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he's from. 
Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me. You know where I'm from. I am not here from my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him and and he sent me. At this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still, many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he really perform more signs than this man? The Pharisees then heard the crowd whispering such things about Jesus. And then the chief priest and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. But Jesus said, I am with you only for a short time, and then I am going to the one who sent me. You'll look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where where does this man intend to go that we can't find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Uh, If you were here last week, uh, you saw the incredible provision that Jesus Christ can give uh, when he miraculously feeds 5,000 men and countless more women and children, all with one schoolboy's lunch. And then tells the crowd, I am the bread of life. I am the God who feeds you, not just physically, but spiritually. And the crowds, if you remember, uh, they didn't like it. In fact, Pretty much all of them leave at that point. Because in the course of Jesus' teaching about how he can satisfy not just our stomachs, but our souls, he exposes their hearts, exposes their motives, exposes their sin. And the crowd didn't like that. They got fed up with Jesus. They got frustrated. They got disappointed because... They are seeing, the closer and closer they get to Jesus, the more and more uncomfortable of a Savior He is proving to be. And now in the verses we just read, uh, Jesus is turning up His uncomfortableness even a little bit more, exposing, critiquing even more now people's hearts, people's motives to the way they approach God. Um, When I was uh, in college, I was an art major, and one of the things that happens all the time in art classes is the critique, where you bring your kind of artwork up, put it on top of something in front of the whole class, and uh, then you explain a little bit, you know, about it, you know, what it is, what you're trying to communicate through it, and then anyone and everyone can critique it, say whatever they want. Like say, you know, I I like that. I don't really like this. Tell me more why you decided to do that. Are you sure you really want to spend all your time doing this? You know, maybe there's another major for you out there. Everyone had an opinion, and they were not always very shy about sharing their opinion. And it was not proper etiquette for the one being critiqued to speak back, to defend yourself or anything like that. You just kind of had to sit there and take it. You were completely exposed. There was nothing you could say until uh, it was their time for their sculpture or whatever to be back up there. And then you're thinking, vindication, it's coming. Here, 
in John 7, the one who we saw at the, last, the end of last chapter was being critiqued, speaks back. In fact, what we find out in the verses that we just read is that it's actually the reverse of what we think is normally happening when we approach Jesus Christ. That actually, we're not critiquing the masterpiece. The masterpiece is critiquing the observer. We're not judging the artist. The artist is judging the viewer. We don't evaluate Jesus. Jesus is evaluating us. That the closer and closer we get to Jesus Christ, the more and more he is exposing what's on the inside. The more he is exposing our hearts, exposing our motives. But here's the thing. He's not doing it to scare us off, to push us away from him. No, Jesus is doing it because he wants us to see who he really is. That he has come from the Father for us and is going back to the Father on behalf of us so that sinful people can be forgiven and accepted by the God who loves them. And so there's three things that I want us to look at this morning, three things in this passage that we see this relatively uncomfortable Savior doing, all right? He unsettles the nominal, he uncovers the devout, uh, and then thirdly, he unburdens the sinner. So first, Jesus unsettles the nominal. Uh, Now, a nominal Christian, maybe you've heard that term kind of thrown around before. What does it mean? A nominal Christian is somebody who says they believe in Jesus, uh, comes to church maybe not that often, maybe they're a a leader in the church. Uh, But on the inside, they don't have a true, actual saving faith in Jesus Christ. It's just just words to them. And starting in verse 2, Jesus reveals his uniqueness, his earthly mission to his brothers and completely unsettles their shallow, nominal faith in him. Jesus' brothers come to him with uh, a a great-sounding human scheme, right? In verse 2, it says the Feast of Tabernacles was near, and uh, his brothers, Jesus' brothers, younger brothers, come to him and say, look, Jesus, you got to leave Galilee, Go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing all these great things, show yourself to the world. You see, we we can probably assume Jesus' brothers have likely just heard of the uh, overwhelming loss of disciples Jesus uh, has just suffered in his miracle of feeding the 5,000, and they're thinking, if Jesus really wants to win back the crowd... If Jesus wants to be taken seriously by the religious leaders, he's got to leave Galilee, that tiny little backwater town. He's got to go to Jerusalem, the big city. And timing's everything. He's got to do it during the Feast of Tabernacles, the most popular of all the feasts in the Jewish calendar. It sounds, in other words, what they're saying is this. They're saying, Jesus, look, you're never going to blow up wasting all your time here in Scranton, Pennsylvania. You got to go to New York. You got to go to LA. Get some followers. Build your brand, man. It sounds like some good advice. John comments, though, on it in verse 5 For even his own brothers did not believe in him. 
There's something off, in other words, with this apparently savvy advice that actually makes it terrible advice. Something in what they're saying that's actually revealing they don't really believe in Jesus. It's just a, a shallow, nominal faith. And so Jesus counters this uh, human scheme of theirs with God's divine agenda. He says, look at me, verse 6. My time is not yet here, but for you, any time will do. Verse 8, you go up to the festival, I'm not going up to this festival, because my time has not yet fully come. See, Jesus' brothers, uh, the problem with their plan actually wasn't with what they told Jesus to do, but when they told him to do it. You see, they failed to recognize the uniqueness of who they're talking to. When Jesus says, uh, my time is not yet here, that word time isn't referring to uh, the moment of his death, like it does uh, later in the passage when he says, you know, my hour has not yet come. No, literally, he just means it's not time yet. God's not ready to send me up to the feast yet. You see, God has placed a divine agenda on the life of Jesus Christ that the whole world is hinging on, meaning Jesus, he is not free to just come and go as he pleases. His brothers can go anytime he wants, but not Jesus, because what Jesus does has the utmost significance in God's plans to redeem the world, whereas conversely, what his brothers do, essentially, is, this is what he's telling them, has no significance in what God is doing in his plans to redeem the world. His brothers fail to acknowledge the uniqueness of Jesus, that he has been sent in love by the Father, as Jesus says in verse 16, with a divine agenda, an earthly mission to bring light into darkness, to bring life where there's death, to give all those who call on his name the right, the privilege to become children of God. Do you recognize this uniqueness in Jesus? Or has he and his mission, his divine agenda, become uh, all too normal for you? How do you know? Well, Jesus uh, actually tells us how we know. In verse 7, Jesus says, We know that we have recognized the uniqueness of who's before us if we experience opposition in our life because we follow Jesus. He says in verse 7, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. Now, that word, the world, in John's gospel has probably got three or four different meanings. Here, it's referring to humanity opposed to God. Now, what Jesus is talking about here is, uh, cannot at all be boxed in, defined into kind of what we think of today as these kind of mere modern-day culture wars. It's not what he's talking about here. In fact, the great irony of the passage is that it's God's people, the Jews, who end up being of the world. Jesus says here, verse 7, the world hates me. And who hates him in this passage? The Jewish leaders who in verse 1 are trying to kill him. Meaning, the world, as opposed to God, isn't just what 
uh, we in American Christianity have come to associate with maybe certain political agendas or anything like that. That may be part of it. Jesus is saying the world can look like either an atheist or it can look like an elder in the church who is sadly traded in their true faith in Jesus Christ for a, a cultural nationalistic Christianity that's entirely opposed to Jesus. Someone who recognizes the uniqueness of Jesus is experiencing opposition, antagonism from the world. Now, if you're only experiencing opposition in your life, it's probably because you're being obnoxious. Uh, Jesus repelled people, yes. He also attracted people. People saw something of the image of God in him that they wanted for themselves. Some of us, though, we, we do experience at times in our lives real antagonis, antagonism, real opposition because of the way we follow Jesus. And what he's saying here it is an incredible encouragement because it's hard. But if you're experiencing no opposition, if there is never any rub in any of the relationships in your life because of the way you follow Jesus, that's because you're actually living a worldly life, a life that doesn't recognize the uniqueness of Jesus Christ as the one sent by God for the salvation of the world. No, his mission, his divine agenda has become all too common to you, and your faith has become all too nominal. Jesus unsettles the nominal. Second, he uncovers the devout. Uh, starting in verse 16, Jesus uncovers the hypocrisy of the so-called devout uh, people who are there with him by proving not just his earthly mission, but his divine origin. Jesus gives three reasons, three reasons why he has come from God. First, he says, because he keeps God's law. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory, the one who sent him, is a man of truth. There's nothing false about him. In other words, Jesus is saying, if, the whole, if, if everything I was doing here was just persuade people to believe me, I would be ruthlessly pragmatic about it. I, I would say or do whatever I needed to just get a response from people. But that's not what I'm doing. No, my motives are pure. In other words, my life is lived to glorify God, honor God, obey God, to keep his law. Second, Jesus says he comes from God because he fulfills God's law. Verse 21, Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, referring back to in John 5, when the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem, he, he healed a man on the Sabbath who hadn't been able to walk for 38 years. Jesus said, I did one miracle and you were all amazed, incensed. Yeah, because Moses gave you circumcision, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a whole man's body on the Sabbath? You see, there's two potentially conflicting laws in the Old Testament. One said that when a, when a boy was born, he had to be circumcised uh, when he was eight days old. There's another law then that a lot of us probably know of that says you can't do any work on the Sabbath. 
Now, when circumcision day fell on Sabbath day, the Jews would still uh, uh, perform the circumcision rite, uh, host the circumcision celebration, because uh, they saw circumcision as an act of God's grace, as Him placing His covenantal love onto this boy, as a part of His redemptive plans for the world. And so Jesus is saying here, how much more then am I displaying God's gracious plans for the restoration of all creation by healing this man's whole body? He keeps the law. He fulfills the law. Third, Jesus says, I have come from God because I know the lawgiver. Verse 28, Jesus was still teaching in the temple courts as people were wondering about him. And he cries out, yes, you know me. And you know where I'm from. I'm not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him. Because I am from him, and he has sent me. Don't you see? Jesus is telling them. I am from above. Come for you. They can't see it because they're of the world. Three reasons, three ways that Jesus pulls the rug out from underneath them and uncovers the worldliness of these uh, so-called devout people. You don't keep the law, verse 19. You don't understand the law, verse 24. You don't know the lawgiver, verse 28. I mean, Jesus is being awfully uncomfortable here. Right? First, he unsettles uh, the unbelief of his nominal brothers, and now here he uncovers the unbelief of his devout fellow Jews. I mean, this is, this is astounding. Jesus is revealing the complete spiritual failure of the most religious people imaginable. That for all their devoutness, all their morality, all their talk of being God's covenant people, the tragic irony of the story is that they're actually a part of the world, actually a part of humanity against God because they can't recognize Jesus Christ as the one who's come from God. Can you? Or have you slid into your own religious hypocrisy? You see, here is the root of the spiritual hypocrisy of these people, root of any spiritual hypocrisy, they've made their spiritual lives about themselves. I mean, look at what the Jews are doing in this passage. Jesus says, you're really zealous about God's law? No, you're not, because you're breaking it right now by trying to kill me. You've really meditated on God's commandments? No, you haven't, because you're mad at me right now for fulfilling all of God's commandments. You really know the Lord? No, you don't, because you can't recognize me as the one who's come from him. So let's just be honest, crowd. This at all is not at all about God. This is about you. Ask yourself this, not if, but how much has my spiritual life become about me? How much of my obedience is making me feel like i got a leg up on other people around me? How much of my prayer 
is to get what I want, not what God wants in this world. How much of my repentance is because I just don't want to feel guilty? How much of my friendships, my community, are really just the people I feel most comfortable with? How much of my devotion has really become hypocrisy? Because I haven't centered my spiritual life on Jesus Christ, the one come from God, sent not by his own designer initiative, verse 18, but from the Father's love to win my acceptance before God. How much of my spiritual life is revolving around him and how much of it is revolving around me? He's awfully uncomfortable. Jesus unsettles the nominal. He uncovers the devout. But thirdly, he unburdens the sinner. Uh, when you read the reaction of the crowd kind of up until this point, it's a mixed bag, none of it really great. Uh, they're hostile, they're confused, uh, they fear the authorities, they uh, have kind of a quasi but not really faith, and yet Jesus loves them. And so he continues to offer his message of salvation to them. That he is not just the one sent by the Father, having come from the Father himself, but more than that, he is the one who is going back to the Father. In other words, not just Jesus' earthly mission or his divine origin, but lastly, his heavenly destination. Starting in verse 32, Jesus tells the Jewish leaders, the goal of his mission of the Father has sent him on. Uh, the, the Pharisees can hear the crowd kind of whispering questions about Jesus. And it says in verse 32, Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest Jesus. But Jesus said to them, I'm only with you for a short time, and then I'm going back to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Now, the Pharisees can't wrap their minds around what Jesus is saying here. If they had, they would have realized the incredibly good news of what Jesus has just told them. See, when Jesus says in verse 33 that he is going back to the one who sent him, He's talking about his ascension. Read about it in Luke 24, Acts 1, when 40 days after his resurrection, uh, Jesus left earth, having completed all he came to do, and ascended, went up, back to his Father in heaven. Now, I'm guessing uh, the ascension of Christ, probably not something we've all spent, you know, tons of time reading and thinking about a lot, all right, uh, two weeks ago in the church calendar. It was Ascension Day. I'm sure we all had a huge party at our house to celebrate it. No? Okay. Without verse 33, hear this. Without verse 33, without Jesus Christ going back to the one who sent him, his death and resurrection has zero value to you. Let me show you one reason. I could do this all afternoon. I won't. Let me show you one reason, one reason why Without verse 33, there is no gospel in your life. All right, here's one reason. Jesus' ascension means when we believe him, 
the proof of our salvation is now sitting before God 24-7. You see, in the Old Testament, uh, a sacrifice was never complete until it was presented before God. And in his ascension, Jesus Christ, his perfect sacrifice that has accomplished our complete salvation has now been presented before God in the heavenly throne room. You see, when Jesus ascended, when he went back to the one who sent him, uh, he didn't ascend to God as some kind of ghost or this ethereal uh, being floating up in the sky. No, he ascended in his resurrected body. The same body that was crucified for our transgressions. The same body that was broken so we could be forgiven. The same body whose blood was spilled to present you holy and free from accusation before God. The same body that on the cross, by faith, had every sin we will ever do placed on Jesus Christ, leaving him completely exposed before the God of the universe, bearing our condemnation, enduring our punishment, because that's what the Father who loves you sent him to do. That body, that sacrifice is sitting before God right this second, meaning... If you believe in Jesus Christ, every time God the Father in heaven looks at his right hand and his ascended son at his right hand, bearing the scars of the nails that held him and the spear that pierced him, he sees the proof of your salvation. And Christian, that means you can have complete assurance that your sin will never separate you from the love of God. Because the one perfect sacrifice for your sins is now sitting in God's sight. Every moment of every day, through every failure, every struggle, every sin, it doesn't move. That's good news. Jesus says in verse 33, I am with you only for a short time, and then I'm going to the one who sent me. This, Jesus is saying, his heavenly destination, this is the goal of his mission, to go back to the one who sent him through the cross on our behalf. You see, the Pharisees, they didn't believe it. And so because of that, Jesus was of no benefit to them. But if you do believe this, it changes everything. The Apostle Peter got this uh, early in the Gospels. If you read in Luke chapter 5, the disciples are uh, out fishing all night, haven't caught a thing. And Jesus shouts to them to throw their nets over onto the other side of the boat. And so they do, and they pull up this miraculous catch of fish. And Peter sensing who Jesus is, shouts, get away from me, I'm a sinful man. Because Peter knows that if Jesus comes close to him, he will be utterly exposed. And then in the end of the Gospels, in John 21, the disciples are out fishing again, again haven't caught anything, and this time the now resurrected Jesus comes 
and yells to them, throw down your nets. And they do. And again, they catch this miraculous catch of fish. And Peter dives into the water and swims to Jesus. What changed? Because if anything, I mean, Peter should have all the more reason to tell Jesus to stay away from him. All the more reason to fear being exposed by Jesus. I mean, he, he has misunderstood Jesus. He's tried to rebuke Jesus. He's failed Jesus at his worst hour. What changed? Peter understood the gospel. That Jesus Christ was sent by the Father to him having come from the Father for him and was now going back to the Father on behalf of him. And that means that Peter's relationship with God is not based on what he does, but on what Christ has done for him. And when Peter, when he gets this, it unburdens him. First time, Peter yells, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Get away from me. Second time, he says, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Stay close to me. Because Peter knows that even when Jesus is the uncomfortable Savior who exposes our hearts, he loves us. And he's doing it for our good and the Father's glory. Thanks be to Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, for this uncomfortable Savior who in love exposes our hearts so that we can believe in him. And by believing, experience all the benefits of the one who in love you sent to us, having come from you for us, and is now back with you on behalf of us. Holy Spirit, let us stay near to this uncomfortable Savior and allow him to expose our hearts, for he is good. Amen.